Welcome, everyone. This is Sasha Moving Mountains. Today, we get to meet Joe Wallenstein, who has produced numerous television movies, pilots, and miniseries. Throughout his more than 40 years in the industry, he's worked as assistant director, associate producer, and producer. He is a director member of the Directors Guild of America, as well as a member of the Writers Guild of America West. The author has a track record in storytelling, having produced two highly successful TV series, Not Standing and Seventh Heaven. He has also written two previous books about film production and safety in professional filming, Practical Filmmaking, A Handbook for the Real World, and Nothing Dies for Film. He'll be joining us to discuss this book, Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent, published by Trine Day. The book is a fictional account of a true story. The release date coincides with the 58th anniversary of Ernesto Miranda's arrest in 1963, for kidnapping and rape. The criminal case, Miranda v. Arizona, 1966, would make his name a household word. Help me welcome Joe Wallenstein. Welcome, Joe, to Moving Mountains. Hello, Sasha. Thank you. Congratulations on your latest book, Very where kind. delve into Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent, which touches upon the Miranda v. Arizona case from 1966. So out of all of the cases in U.S. history, what was it about this case that picked your attention and you wanted to bring it to life? Well, there are two answers to that question. Um, Of all the cases possible, I think what was special about this is that this was not a case about guilt or innocence. It was about a basic fundamental principle of American life, and that is fairness. Was, was Miranda, is anybody, treated fairly? Uh, that was the prime uh, motivation in that, in that uh, appeal. Why I got involved is that uh, in those days, uh, I lived in Brooklyn, and I actually wrote in longhand on a yellow pad in pencil. So you can imagine what a process that was. But I happened to be listening to the radio. I used to write all night. And uh, I would stop when I heard cars outside because that was the real world returning and I had to get into the real world. Uh, But the night Miranda died, I was listening to the radio and it came over the radio that the man for whom the decision uh, had been earned had been killed. And the police did not have Miranda cards to Mirandize the suspects who they caught. But the barmaid in rifling uh, Miranda's pockets for identification came across his uh, card that he'd been he was selling as uh, souvenirs and handed it to the police and the police read the suspects their rights rights won for them in the name of the man they had just killed well I remember thinking you got to be kidding if a writer just wrote that you'd roll your eyes and think oh please come on but that's what actually happened and it sparked an interest in the case uh, and the people 
at the, all I knew at that point was about this fellow Miranda. And because I was living in New York, all I could do was go to the Brooklyn Public Library, the New York Public Library, the Brooklyn College. I mean, I could go to a lot of libraries, and there's tons of material about the case. But the more I learned, the more I realized that I needed to speak to the attorney who had uh, brought the case before the courts, and there were other attorneys. It wasn't just one guy, but John Flynn was the lead attorney and the one who pled first before the courts. And that started a, a, a long journey for me because I had to get to Flynn. I didn't know how. I didn't know where. Uh, but it's funny. I, I tease. Uh, I always say, uh, you know, it only took Ulysses 10 years to get home from Troy. It took me a lot longer to get to this book. Uh, my journey was a lot longer. I went to California and uh, I, as an assistant director, and I... Uh, which put me closer to Phoenix. And I would just keep calling and calling. I had to find Flynn. And lo and behold, one day, I noticed that in Phoenix, there was a, um, a firm called Goldstein, Flynn, and Mason. So I called it. And after not being able to find Flynn for months, a guy, the head of the company, Philip Goldstein, answers the phone. He goes, uh, Philip Steve Goldstein. I said, I'm looking for John Flynn. He says to me, oh, you're looking for John? Hold on, he's right here. <laughs> and he hands the phone to John Flynn. And now I'm talking to John Flynn. I said, look, if I come to Phoenix, will you, can I interview you about the case? He said, yeah, you can. I will. Of course, at that point, I didn't have the money or the time to go to Phoenix. So uh, I was went down to Mexico to do a picture, and the executive producer and I would go to dinner on Saturday night. And I started to tell him about this extraordinary situation and uh, that I had contacted the attorney. The guy said to me, you make a date with the attorney. I'll go with you. I'll pay for it. Let's do it. So that's what happened. Uh, I went to see John Flynn, and I interviewed him. And in that interview, I said to him, you know, you must have been asked about this case a thousand times. He said, I was asked about this case a thousand times. But, Joe, you're the only guy that ever asked me about the price I paid. And so that really was uh, the genesis of the book, Flynn and Miranda. Who paid the dues? It wasn't Miranda. It was Flynn. You happen to humanize the characters that there are parallels between Flynn and Ernesto Miranda. What were some of them? that came to light? Well, there's no, by no stretch of the imagination can you say Miranda was a good guy. He was a career criminal. Uh, he was violent. He was angry. But he, he, he was so damaged. Uh, he had a, a stepmother who abused him. Uh, he was in trouble with the law forever. Uh, but he never stopped trying to not be that guy. He tried to be uh, a father. He tried to be uh, a solid citizen. He just, he just couldn't do it. So I had empathy for a guy who struggles, right? Not that I thought he was a good guy. I actually mirrored what Flynn said to me when the, pep, uh, the newspapers published the picture of uh, cartoon of, of uh, somebody on the gallows, and the caption said, Sorry, Ernie, no more appeals. Miranda was not a good guy, but he didn't deserve to die like that. And that kind of mirrors what I thought. Uh, and then I'm telling a story about two, it wasn't like Flynn was a saint. They're two deeply flawed guys, but together 
they changed the legal system, or they set the process, the wheels in motion to change the legal system in this country. Even though Ernesto had multiple convictions prior to the 1963 conviction for kidnapping and rape, do you believe even though he did not, he shouldn't have died the way he did by being stabbed, do you feel that karma was fulfilled or he still had a karmic debt to pay? Well, that's an interesting question. I didn't think of it in those terms. Uh, I mean, Flint said to me, you could see, he said, I didn't know this was going to happen, but you could see it coming. You could see uh, he was uh, angry, belligerent, he was back drinking. Uh, it, it didn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't too hard to see that something was going to happen. Not exactly that, but he just, he was never going to be uh, an upright citizen, a stand-up citizen. The only person, the only woman in his life that showed him, well, he was living with a woman, and he did care for her. But in his younger days, the only uh, woman was a, a, a nun at the Queen of uh, Angels uh, Elementary School, uh, named Sister Calandra, who, uh, when he was very young, seven, eight, uh, took a liking to him and protected him and walked him to class and made sure he, you know, his hair was combed and all that stuff. And he uh, infor uh, formed an attachment to her. But when she was transferred away from the school, he felt that the only person who cared for him had been ripped from his life. So there were so many miles of bad road with Miranda that uh, it almost, you say karmic, it almost could not have ended any other way in, a, in one sense. Now, the ACLU had appointed Flynn to the case. Did Flynn have any incentives to take on the case, or did it just come instinctively that he'll represent well, this alleged client as anybody else? First of all, the ACLU was very involved, but they didn't have a, an office in Phoenix. They dealt with correspondent attorneys. And uh, Robert Corcoran had been an assistant district attorney and felt that the case that this should come through on his watch, that he couldn't handle it. He also had the instinct that he, it was going to be controversial. And he needed somebody who would, would not shy away, who actually embraced the controversy. Uh, and so he wanted John Flynn. Flynn thought of it. First of all, it's what he did. He, he always represented the most unpopular cases. But here comes a case, and because of the timing, he thought maybe this is the time the Supreme Court would listen to this. They, after all, the Warren Court had heard Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment cases. Maybe they would listen uh, to this. So it was a combination. It wasn't altruism. It was a combination of uh, ego and uh, opportunity and to, uh, a chance to appear on the, on the grand stage. Uh, but it was also Flynn's affinity for the underdog. So it was a combination. Yeah. So in the case, allegedly it states that Flynn worked pro bono. Is, there, is that true? He worked pro bono. What happened was the law firm he was with had a, made an agreement to work two cases a year pro bono. And uh, Miranda was the second case. So, yeah. And the truth is, he, Flynn did not become, he was reviled by the police. He lost friends. It cost him a whole, paid a whole lot of dues. It wasn't until uh, later on when they, uh, uh, they began to form the Burger Commission and look at the whole panoply of uh, 
the criminal procedures and began to put that together that he started to get the recognition that was due. That, plus the big corporations, I think it was Westinghouse, Lyle Myers said at a convention of uh, attorneys general of corporations that they were honored to have been represented by the firm that took on Miranda. It's a little bit of story there. They also tried to get him fired, but but once once it was uh, in the in the public eye, they were very proud of their association. So Flynn's rewards, if you will, came uh, after the fact. Early on, you mentioned that the case itself explores the idea of fairness of how Ernesto was treated. Is the fairness in the context of the legal system in the eyes of humanity? What well, context would you describe it? it let's go back to the 1962. In 1962, it was permissible in this country to be taken from your home, accused of a crime, kept in prolonged custody, denied legal counsel, and tricked into confessing. And nothing the courts or the police would have done was illegal. It was just terribly wrong. Because the, uh, the uh, confession in those days, was, it was always inherently tainted. Because every lawyer came to court and said, sure, my client confessed. They beat him to within an inch of his life and blind the jury to all the other facts in the case. Remember, in the days of Miranda, there was no forensics and voice pathology and DNA and all the kind of modern uh, scientific corroborative uh, instruments that now we now have. Uh, so, yes, it was unfair. It was unfair. Because, let's put it this way. You and I are uh, well-educated, comfortable in our skin, uh, feel like proud citizens. But if you're poor, uneducated, a minority, not sure of, and, and, uh, not sure of your place in society, and you're confronted by the police and uh, kept prolonged interrogation and guys boring in on you, we know you did it, say you did it. It's tough if you don't know your rights to stand up to that. So uh, I think that was the driving force. Not that Miranda was innocent or a good guy. What, what is, uh, you know, in due process, equal protection under the law, what does that mean? Thank you for touching upon that because I was going to mention that if Miranda had been, let's say, hypothetically, Ivy League educated, very street smart, and had been in the same situation, what would have been the chances that he would have made it past the first conviction and then had it overturned, and then that case was, con and then he was convicted again? Well, he was convicted again, although the second time he was convicted, it was uh, on some tainted uh his uh, common-law wife testified against him at the second trial. Now, I want to go back to the early part of that question. I'm very respectful of the police. Ninety-nine percent of them do a wonderful job. They're pros. They care. If I get stopped by the police, I'm not scared. I know I have rights. I know I'm not doing it. I'm always courteous, right? But if you're Ernesto Miranda or, or anybody of in that circumstance, uh, or I'll, I'll, let me put it this way. Uh, Miranda said to John Flynn, when the cops came to my house, standing there in the doorway, I didn't know if I had the right to tell those guys to go to hell. When Flynn got to the Supreme Court, he said to the justices, at that moment, the only person who could tell Miranda what his rights were was the officer who came to arrest him. 
And that was a key uh, point in the uh, when they argued before the Supreme Court. Does this, is the subject knowledgeable about his rights? And if not, who's going to tell him? The only that's that's where the uh, Miranda cards come from. The minute if you watch any of these shows, and God bless Dick Wolf and all 456 episodes of Law and Order, they Mirandize him immediately. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain. They do it immediately because one of the fears. Uh, when the case was first uh, adjudicated was that uh, they would accuse somebody and that somebody would start to talk before they had Mirandized them. And anything they said before they were Miranda could be, uh, a lawyer could say, can't be used. He didn't know. He wasn't knowledgeable about his rights. And it does, and, and look, did, 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 did guilty guys go free in the wake of Miranda? Yes, they did. Uh, some, not many, some. It took a while. But the other thing Miranda's decision did is it, it, it gave uh, similarity to all 18,000 police agencies in this country. You know, it gave a standard way to uh, operate. And eventually it did, when they couldn't rely primarily on the confession, it did force police work into more scientific corroborative evidence. And when they go into court now, uh, with a uh, confession. It stands. It's interesting. I don't know if you're aware of this. There was just a case in, I think it was Brooklyn, Iowa, I think, where they uh, threw out the confession. The guy was found guilty anyway, but they threw out the confession because the police officer who arrested him left out one phrase, one phrase. Yeah, I think she left out anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. Well, it was not a small uh, omission, and they threw out his, uh, his confession. They, they found him guilty on other evidence. but So it's just become part of the American culture. That's how police operate now. You Mirandize people. Correct. And is this the case from about two days ago? I came across one where it was thrown out of New Jersey because the teen was not read his or her right. Oh, uh, the one I'm, that's possible. But the one I'm referencing took place in Brooklyn, Iowa. Iowa <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and it's been about a week. Okay. Uh, I can't think of the name. But it was all over the news. Yeah. But as you shared, it did lead to the creation of the criminal code, which is active in all 50 states now. And extracting the phrase, you have the right to remain silent, it got me thinking because the word silent in different parts of the world and different cultures has different meanings. And especially when you're approached and read your Miranda right, silent means don't speak and, or you're going to be offering self-incriminating evidence in other That's- Parts yeah. of the world, silent could be con- consent, and you have to speak up. Ah, that's to- interesting. No, uh, in the American context of, uh, and in my mind, that means uh, if 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 uh, somebody said to me, Joe, you're under arrest. Uh, tell us how it happened. And I would say, well, you know, I needed the money. I had the gun. So what the heck? Uh, I would have to be crazy. I would say, I'm sorry. I I need a lawyer to help me. And uh, I wouldn't bear witness against myself. So I, I, that, um, it, that comes in a strictly American uh, context. The other is, it, I like that. The other is very interesting. I did not think of it that way. Go it got me thinking yesterday. I said with this upcoming conversation, the word silent, I started looking at it differently because I know that in some parts of the world, silent can be obedient, but you have to speak up in order to oh, take a stand. Oh, that's so interesting. No, ma'am, I did not think of it, that, and I don't think they thought. I thought they strictly, well, what happened with uh, with uh, Miranda was he, he did essentially 
bear witness against himself. When they brought him, uh, brought his uh, victim to the lineup, she didn't identify him. And the officer, uh, uh, police officers were very frustrated. Miranda said, how did I do? And they said, you failed miserably. So he's back in the interrogation room and the police matron walks in with the young lady and their eyes meet for a moment. And Miranda says, thinking he's already been identified, says, uh, yeah, man, that's her. And basically confessed. Uh, now, had he known he uh, didn't have to do that, well, he would have kept his mouth shut. This lawyer would say, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. I, I know it's very interesting to find out that it could be uh, misconstrued in other parts of the world. I think of this, although I think it's interesting, you know, it, it, as all legal cases are at some level, uh, I think the case was uniquely American. Because there were so many different versions of the case, how it's described even on legal website and book, what is the biggest misconception about that case, in your opinion, after researching it? Ah, what is the biggest misconception? Well, I know that the police thought it was, in the day, thought it was going to be the end of uh, police work. And uh, that goes back to something I said a minute ago about Mirandizing immediately. I remember a police officer saying, look, I pull a guy over, he's acting suspicious, I ask him to open his trunk, he opens his trunk and there's a dead body. And I step back and I reach for my gun, and in that minute, the guy says, no, 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 it was an accident, I didn't mean to kill her, he's confessed, but he hasn't been Mirandized. And when they get to court, that confession may not be usable, and the cop had him dead to rights. He could say he found the body, but he couldn't say the guy just confessed. So I think the police thought it was the end of police work. I think Flynn and the legal profession thought, well, if every police officer knew that at that moment they had to Mirandize and they did it right away, that would be a non-starter. They opened the trunk. I mean, it's a little gruesome, and I'm sorry for uh, being uh, sort of you know gruesome. But that was, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's even in my conversation with Flynn, that that was the police worry. Since uh, most books translate to TV series and films, do you anticipate that this book will well, be on screen this, in this the future? Well, should, should be a movie. Whether it will, will or not remains to be seen, although I do have some, I'm not quite sure what level you would describe interest. I have had discussions. Uh, but everything I write, I hope, will either be a movie or a television uh, series or a movie of the week. I come out of television, as you know. Uh, your audience may or may not know that I was the first producer of the series Knots Landing, first producer of the series Seventh Heaven. Uh, did a whole lot of other stuff. So I'm comfortable in the series for, uh, genre. Uh, this, I don't see how you make a series out of Flynn, although I suppose you could. It's a lawyer, but I, I don't see that. But I do think this would make a good movie. Yeah. So from all of the scripts that you've written in humanizing your characters and after working on this book, what is the common emotion that runs through all of your work? I, I have, as a writer, I have to get into the head of the character I'm writing about. I have to, at least in the writing, become that person. So, for example, if I'm writing Flynn, I have to understand what drove him and why he was the way he was. Uh, 
And that's true of everything. You know, I wrote the highest rated Knots Landing, a thing called The Loudest Word. And when I set out to write it, I thought I was writing about the Valine Ewing character. And I quickly realized I was uh, writing the Gary Ewing, the, the husband character, because I understood him better. I understood his anger and frustration and you know, a guy who's watching his wife uh, have to go through surgery and he can't do anything about it. And, and uh, that tracked to my own life. So for me, everything I do in my mind is character driven, but I have to understand the character. With your book, Flynn and Miranda, you're right to remain silent. It is a fictional account. They stop a real story. So Correct. how are you able to assess in what Varying degree, could you take the liberty to infuse your creativity without compromising the real story? Well, everything I did, everything I uh, dramatized, appears in the interview with uh, Mr. Flint. It's in the book. It's not it just I didn't just make it up from whole cloth. Um, but the big, the biggest, I don't know, I guess you would say leap I took is that Flynn always tried to downplay it. Oh, no, it was no big deal. It was just, an, uh, you know, it's just a consequence of the uh, case itself. Well, I don't know too many guys who argued before the Supreme Court and got the Supreme Court to see it their way. I do, th plus the fact I know, you know, in 1962, Phoenix, Arizona was about as conservative as you could get. It was the home of Barry Goldwater and pursuit of uh, liberty and extremism and the pursuit of liberty is no vice. That was his statement. Extremism and the pursuit of liberty is no vice. A very conservative community. And here comes this uh, attorney, you know, high profile, bigger than life guy. And the case, when it, not officially, but the kind of murmurs about the case was, oh, it was the Mexican who raped the white girl. And Flynn said, there had to be something fundamentally flawed about a case that's built that way, that that's how it was seen. Because it wasn't a question of his ethnicity. It was, he committed a crime. So uh, when you think about it, here's this conservative community. And by the way, Every conservative chief justice since then, whether it was uh, Earl Warren or Warren Berger or William Rehnquist or John Roberts, have protected that Miranda decision. Uh, and yet it's, an, it's been embraced by liberals because it uh, seems to help the, the poor, uneducated, dis, uh, disenfranchised. Everybody is protected, the most conservative, the most liberal. Everybody works on the same rules now. And so, yeah, that's fair. Doesn't mean uh, it, it tilts towards the guilty or tilts towards the innocent. It just means everybody's playing by the same rules. And by the way, that's what the criminal code, same thing. Uh, you know, Sasha, you're under arrest. Oh, by the way, you don't have to talk to us. I'll get you an attorney. Oh, you don't have one? We'll get it for you. And by the way, we're going to make our evidence known, and we're going to, you can postpone, and, and you're going to be judged by your people. In other words, every step of the way is now outlined. It, it, there's no mystery anymore to the legal system. So, uh, yeah, I think Miranda made the American legal system. What, what came of it? Because what came of it was the, it, the case jawed loose a recognition that the, the uh, legal system in this country was in need of an overhaul. And uh, that's what the Burger Commission was about. They put together lawyers and scholars and judges and uh, defense attorneys, and they hammered out what it took to, uh, to adjudicate uh, and, and administer justice. 
And uh, the great closing line of the book, but on the movie, is that Arizona, for all the grief Flynn took to make it happen, Arizona was the first state to adopt it. Yeah. So I, I also think, maybe this is sound self-serving, but I also think it's the last great, true, untold story of the last century. And the reason I did it now, look, I'm an older dog, right? I'm no spring chicken. If I leave this planet without telling this story, no one will ever know what happened. Oh, they'll know about the case, the million books written about the case. But they'll never know about John Flynn and, uh, and what uh, he accomplished. And by the way, there was an article in a magazine called American Heritage. It said, uh, 10 people you've never heard of who have changed your life. That was the article. And one of those people was John Flynn. So I felt if I leave this planet without telling the story, no one will ever know the story. So I sat down and wrote. I make it sound like I did it in a day. It was like pulling teeth. I did it, though, in the middle of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I was under the impression that the entire project started during COVID and you wrapped up the book. You oh, referenced yeah. Ulysses, so I suspected that you've been working on this probably for at least maybe a decade. Oh, at least. <laughs> in 2000, I once pitched this as a movie to Brad Pitt right after 9-11, which was the most surreal day of my life. Here, the whole world is on its ear, and I'm sitting in a boardroom trying to pitch this story to Brad Pitt. Uh, and he was interested for 15 minutes, but this is Hollywood, and that didn't happen because uh, he got offered a lot more money. <laughs> and then I wrote it as a script, and it got optioned twice. Uh, and the people who optioned it couldn't put it together for one reason or another. So I've had this story in my head and in my files uh, in one form or another for it seems like my whole life. Uh, and I didn't want to leave this world, uh, and I have no intentions of leaving this world soon, I hope, but um, I didn't want to be the guy who uh, was known for writing the song T for One or inventing Six Up. I didn't want to be the almost got it told. So the thing about writing it as a book, I don't need anybody's permission. I just needed a computer and time to think. And so that's what I did. Well, I'm glad you did that because I truly believe when the timing and opportunity is right, it will make it on screen somehow. And as we start to wrap things up, are there any new projects that you're working on other than the book uh, promotion? I... Um I have several books that have, have not shown anybody yet, and I'll tell you why. If I, if I, I have uh, two fiction novels that are going to be out the year, next year or the year after, but if I said to you, oh, read my next book, Joe Wallenstein, you'd go, who's Joe Wallenstein? So I thought, look, everybody has heard, whether they like it, don't like it, agree, disagree, most people have heard about the Miranda decision or the right to be, remain silent or Mirandize. So I thought if this book comes out first and it makes any kind of uh, noise at all, uh, I would be able to promote my other books by saying, oh, this is the guy that did that Flynn and Miranda, right? So it was, it's a calculated, uh, pr I guess, plan. Now, am I right? Well, time will tell. <laughs> Finally, if you had any guidance to share with upcoming script writers and authors, what would be at least two tips that you would part with? Follow your, your, your own star. Don't let other people tell you what to do. Uh, just write. It's a different world, you know. 30, 40 years ago, there were constructs, and you had to do this, and then you had to do that. 
Not anymore. Just and, and don't let don't get down. Soldier on. Do you know what that expression means? Soldier on. I've I've gotten more rejections than Carter has liver pills. And you know what? I go to, tell myself, Joe, just keep going. Just keep going. Yeah. When I first started in this business, a guy said to me, Joe, you want this business, you've got to want it more than life. And I thought, gosh, that's a crazy thing to say. But as the years went along and my career began to flourish, I realized what he meant. Missed dinners, disrupted relationships, uh, rejection. Uh, you've got to really want it. The other thing is keep writing. Writing is the one thing you don't need anybody's permission to do. Right? I need, like, I'm going to make a movie. I need money. I need distribution. I need somebody to deem me worthy. But you, as a writer, just write it. Just write it. Uh, ten years ago, uh, if you said you're going to self-publish, people kind of looked down their nose. Oh. Um, uh, I know a lot of people who are self-publishing. The question is, do they want to uh, uh, engage in marketing? I apologize. That's one of my phones ringing. But don't worry. Uh, of course, I'm head of production for the USC Film School, and that's the largest uh, film program in the world. So I only tell you that because that's why my phone's ringing. There's always somebody who wants something from me. <laughs> uh, to, no, you ask good questions, you know. You ask good questions. You ask valid questions. I mean, I don't know that I'm anybody's role model, you know. I've struggled. It's taken me a long time. Uh I just don't give up. Everything I've done, everything I've done, I've somebody told me I couldn't do. Now, I didn't go out and do it in, under the thing of, oh, I'll show them. No, you've got to do something. You're going to live your life. You've got to do something. <laughs> and so I just keep my head down and keep going. And it's why I've been successful. It's one of the reasons I've been successful. Well, is, from your uh, portfolio of work, it's pretty clear that you were in it for the longevity, not to be a one-hit wonder. That's right, and I hope I'm not a one-trick pony. I mean, this is my third book, although admittedly the other two are film-centric. Practical movie making is uh, is uh, about how you actually make movies, and nothing dies for film it has to do with safety in filming because USC is the safest uh, film-producing school in the world. Over thirty thousand projects without a single I injury. Uh, but my other books are going to be uh, fiction novels. Uh, I have one about a guy, true story, that is a true story, word for word, about a, a restaurateur in L.A. who uh, went and got a, a kid back who'd been kidnapped and then got double-crossed by the FBI. Uh, that's a true story, and only I know it, and it's in, it hasn't been published yet, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So I guess because of you sharing the latest insights, one question, I promise, and then we'll let you go. Uh, what is one quality about the students that you teach at the film school that lets you know whether they're going to survive or they're going to drown out? Uh, that's a very good question. I think they have to be able to listen and adjust. Uh, if they get locked in, in their... Some, now, look, one size doesn't fit all. I mean, we've had two youngsters come through the school that are phenomenally successful, John Cho, who directed Crazy Rich Asians, and I think just did another one, The Heights, and Ryan Coogler, who did Black Panther and Fruitvale Station and Creed. Uh, but interesting, uh, Ryan was a uh, very uh, willing-to-listen-and-learn youngster uh, who married his innate talent with uh, 
the wisdom provided by the professors. And it served him well. It really served him well. So I think the ones that struggle uh, get locked into their own heads and uh, can't adjust. Because remember, it's not just art. We build ourselves as an art school, but they're going into a business, a film business, right? And there's a difference between what you do as a student and what you do OPN. You know what that means? Other people's money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You hear that in real estate, OPM. But that's what happens. If somebody puts up a lot of money, uh, you have to do two things. You have to make it wonderful and you have to make it for the price. So... Uh, it's the ability to, I think, the ability to learn and grow serves these the kids who are successful well. But one thing about the kids who come to SC, they're all incredibly smart. They're all incredibly talented. Some of them are a little too smart for their own good, but that sorts itself out. Yeah, look, look, if you would know me when I was younger and think I would have a career in the film business, you would have thought, uh, I got a better chance to grow antlers than this guy to be in the film business. But here I am. So uh, never underestimate passion and desire. That is really what I believe. Well, I believe the root word of passion has to do with sacrifice. So you really have to be rested and backing it up with your actions to make it Correct. Viable. Yeah. And Mr. Joe, thank you for sharing your time. Would you be kind in letting the audience know where they can reach you? Uh, depends why they want to reach me. <laughs> I don't accept <laughs> threats. I'm not getting any lawsuits. You want to send money here? I'll give you the address. No. Uh, you should, they should look at my website, joewallenstein.com. How's that for a title? Pretty clever, huh? JoeWallenstein.com. Pretty it's convenient. <laughs> well, I, I don't take myself. I take myself very seriously, and yet I don't take myself very seriously. You know? I don't know if that translates, but I just, I am what I am. Like what Papa used to say, I am what I am. Well, I'm glad to hear that. There was a part of me anticipating the very serious producer showing up but i do believe that there's a time and place where you got to play and you get to work and as long as people know the difference between taking work seriously and taking themselves seriously i think they go further in life that's right that's very well said yeah okay mr joe thank you so much on joining us on moving mountains and hopefully in the future you'll drop by with your other books to discuss i will do that yes ma'am thank you very much 